And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to another round of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. I am your host, J. David Weeder, and if that is a mouthful for you, feel free to call me Dave. This time around, we peek into the pages of Daredevil Yellow number 3, in which we get a big bag of new scenes not in the original issues of Daredevil. That's right, new content. Before we do that, I have a real quick update. The bonus episodes that you have been seeing are done. There's no more in the can. I didn't want to waste them, but I didn't necessarily want to put them out as the prime episode, since they are what I'm calling a concept sketch and I hope you did enjoy them. Ultimately, the seasonal format was a fun idea. The logic was there, but it just isn't for me overall. The flip side to that is realizing that there will be weeks that happen on occasion with no episode of this show. I have accepted that. It comes with the territory. There are those who can knock out an episode every week for five years to them. Utmost respect, they are the masters. I, however, realize that time management and easy distractions get the better of me from time to time. And that is kind of part of who I am and kind of what comes into the show with me. So logically, it will affect the show from time to time. So my goal is to build small breaks here and there into the schedule to account for the potentially busy weeks, the illnesses, what have you. And frankly, I would rather be upfront about it and plan for them to allow a bit of freedom to do things like take a vacation or work on more research-oriented episodes. So overall, the show will be weekly, it will be ongoing, just not every week of every month of every year to infinity and beyond, because let's be honest, I'm nearly 40, I'm out of shape, and I have adult obligations, so I've got to put a little bit more time into the gym and a little bit more time into paying bills than I have in the past. I need to prioritize a little bit differently. So in order to continue the show for the foreseeable future, long term, there has to be a bit of a fulcrum release, and I'd rather do small one or two week breaks versus the three month breaks. Overall, it's a controlled chaos, and I'm taking steps to make sure that these happen at planned times rather than last-minute decisions. Those steps include some more rainy day episodes, odd bits and pieces of coverage that are fully finished and sit on a shelf until needed. Additionally, I don't want to keep a tight format on what is covered and how it's covered. There have been ideas for episodes that got the boot because they weren't directly tied to DD. So I pulled those out. I'm taking another look. Some of them, like the Captain America Spectacular, can be made to work and would be spectacular if slightly strange episodes. So I do want to try some of those, and I have two in mind already. They will have tangential ties to Daredevil, but sometimes that might be a hard sell, so I just have to make episodes that kick ass. Occasionally they may boil down to, if you like Daredevil, you might like this. So to summarize, there will be occasional breaks in the normal release, and some uncharted territory and coverage, which will have a more tangential tie to The Man Without Fear. To that end, there will be a two-week break in April. Oh, you didn't see that coming? No, seriously, there will be two Sundays in April without episodes to work around a couple of commitments, including my 10th wedding anniversary. That will be April 17th and April 24th, with the show back in action on May 1st. However, I do want to point out, once again, I gave you two bonus episodes, so the number of episodes will still be correct. Well, we do have a comic book to get to. As I record this under the ironically watchful eyes of my Funko Daredevil Pops, 
we should probably get down to Daredevil Yellow number three. But first, I'm going to take a quick break to get mentally prepared and harness my chi. While I do that, here is a promo for Avengers Inspirations, hosted by John and Lily Wilson. I will be right back. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man, the Incredible Hulk, the Mighty Thor, the Captain America. Wow, being dramatic there, aren't we? Do do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, Mm -hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not looking at Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... Fa- <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you! In the last two episodes of Dave's Daredevil podcast, present-day Matt Murdock is remembering the events that inspired him to become Daredevil, to deal with the death of Karen Page. We saw Matt Murdock lose his father to criminals after Jack refused to throw a fight. Unable to accept that the criminals slipped through the legal system, Matt donned a costume and adopted the name Daredevil and attacked them at Fogwell's gym. Matt convinced the gunman, Slade, to confess to Jack's murder, but his boss, the Fixer, died of a heart attack. And Nelson and Murdoch gained a new secretary, Miss Karen Page, and that brings us to the next leg in the saga, Daredevil Yellow Number 3, the October 2001 issue. As before, we have a cover by Tim Sale. Here we have Foggy and Matt shaking hands on the steps of their new firm, Nelson and Murdoch, as Daredevil's image is cast in the sky, holding a billy club out to the reader. I'm going to be honest, I don't have a lot to say about this cover that I didn't have to say about the first issue. In fact, the first and third issues have covers that are essentially opposite sides of the same coin, even having the same shade of yellow for the sky. It almost acts as a slight narrative for the passage of time. They work together, and I like them for the exact same reasons, but neither really separates itself as a standout. 
The story inside, though, is entitled Stepping Into the Ring, written by Jeff Loeb, with art by Tim Sale, letters by Wes Abbott, and colors by Matt Hollingsworth. As all the issues are, they are reprinted in the Daredevil Yellow Trade paperback or hardcover. It's on the Marvel app and Comixology for digital download, both in trade and individual form, and available for reading on Marvel Unlimited. Cracking open the issue, we open with The Thing crashing his head through the second floor windows of Nelson and Murdoch looking for Matt Murdoch. Indeed, all four members of Marvel's first family are hovering outside in the Fantasticar, and they have come with the prospect of work for Matt Murdock. It seems they have some routine things that need some lawyering done, and Matt has come recommended. And, as a new firm, clients are, of course, welcome. The FF takes off, telling Matt to drop a retainer agreement and add the cost of the damaged window into it, while in the offices, the mood is celebratory. After all, they now have some high-end clients, and Foggy proposes that he and Matt take Karen to their old college hangout, the Marlin Cafe, to celebrate which seems like a good place to take a knee and talk about this particular leg of the issue. The opening page of The Thing's face staring back at the reader elicits a series of reactions. One would be a bit of shock, followed by laughter at the ridiculousness of it. His facial expression is a mix of confusion and anger, but astute readers of 1964's Daredevil Number 2 know what is wrong with this picture. Namely, that The Thing crashed through the door of Nelson and Murdoch, and that in turn led to a scene that many have said is ridiculous and impossible. Ben Grimm fusing the door by forcing the two halves back together. However, that isn't quite as far-fetched as one would imagine. I've done the research, and there is a concept called friction welding that works on this very principle. To be specific, it's called linear friction welding, and in linear friction welding, two pieces of wood are placed together and vibrated at a speed fast enough to allow heat and friction to merge the two pieces together. Which really has nothing to do with the issue in front of us, I just didn't want to waste all that research. The other big problem with this scene, when comparing it to the events of Daredevil number 2, Matt wasn't present when the Fantastic Four arrived. Matt was actually out busting up an automobile shop headed by Electro and got all of the paperwork second hand. It would be simple to say that Loeb put Matt in the scene to streamline the story, that would make sense, but the simple answer is boring. So here's my take. Matt is remembering all of this as he writes his letters to Karen, so we are looking at this through the unreliable prism of memories. With that, Matt places himself there by mistake. It's probably a story that he and Foggy have told over and over again, and he has fudged the details so many times, he's convinced himself of this. It's not the most problematic error, but another reminder that this is from the point of view of an unreliable narrator. However, as I was thinking about this in the past week, another aspect dawned on me, another perspective. While we are looking at memories, there could be another vehicle for the thought process, namely a dreamlike state or a trance. And suddenly we have the idea that Matt's process of remembering involves dream logic. Now, it might be more of a daydream mindset than an actual REM state, but it becomes fluid. To support this, let me point out that for what we see in the modern age across a few sparse pages in the first issue, Matt is around Fogwell's gym. No paper, no pen, just wandering the old place. So we can assume that Matt is elsewhere, scribbling these memories down or typing them. He lets his mind wander back, but the memories have this sheen on them. Whether put there consciously or subconsciously, Matt inserts himself into places that he wasn't and reorders the events. Therefore, the memories are fluid, allowing some new elements, which you're going to get into later in the episode. You could basically compare it to the dream where you're in class wearing only your underwear. The classroom is a real place, the people there are real, but you're nearly 40 and you graduated a decade ago. Or a dream that you are in New York with Dr. Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner sneaking around Paul Spataro's house waiting for him to wake up while eating his Doritos. What that allows is a fluid story where some of the memories are jumbled but the psychological significance goes up a few notches in some relevant ways and so not relevant ways. 
I would interpret Matt placing himself in the offices when the Fantastic Four arrive as a form of wishful thinking, almost as if Mr. Fantastic offered a form of approval on Matt, not Daredevil. Or maybe it's the simple version. It is easier to place Matt here to expedite the story a bit rather than actually add another page of exposition. However, either way, Fantastic Four, they look great. When you think about it, the Fantastic Four are the perennial Silver Age Marvel Comics property. Maybe the truest link from Golden Age storytelling to the more progressive modern version. Very Norman Rockwell in their concept. Which means Sale really shines here since the Fantastic Four lend themselves so naturally to his own Norman Rockwell idealized Americana stylings. The two-page spread of the Fantastic car hovering outside the office building is filled with small details. Like two men in a nearby truck marveling at the sight of Marvel's premier super team, Sue Storm is catching the debris of the Thing's entry with an invisible bubble, and Human Torch flies in a loop amusing a child looking out the window. It's damn hard not to look at this spread and not smile. One of my favorite aspects is Matt and Reed's dialogue, as Matt tells Reed to call him Matt, instead of Mr. Murdoch because that is so Mr. Murdoch, and Reed tells Matt to call him by the first name as well. To an extent, this comes off as two men in charge of their respective nuthouses, and conveyed, to me, at least a sense of respect and admiration, a form of camaraderie. Dreamlike, I tell you. And there is the first real stone set in place for the Matt and Karen romance. As Foggy gives Matt some grief about his exchange with Mr. Fantastic, Karen sticks up for Matt and also adds that they should be proud of what they accomplished here today. When she does so, her heart skips a beat and so does Matt's. He forgets all about the Fantastic Four and it only matters that Matt is important to Karen. Which brings us to the next leg of the journey. Let's jump back into Daredevil Yellow number 3. Later, Daredevil makes his way to the Marlin Cafe by way of Billy Club and Rooftop, ditching the Daredevil costume before meeting up with Foggy and Karen. Things don't go swimmingly at the Marlin Cafe as a group of college douchebags give Matt a hard time about wanting to shoot pool and call him Helen Keller. So Matt schools them, rattling off a string of Helen Keller jokes as he sinks every ball with one shot save the eight ball. A bit later, Matt helps Karen into a cab, sharing some tips about curing hiccups cups with Karen before sending them on their way. Once alone, Matt faces off against the college douchebags waiting in an alley who think Matt is easy prey thanks to his blindness. As you would expect, he thoroughly kicks their asses before swinging off into the night, leaving their sorry asses laying in that dark alley, which is another good stopping point to take a moment and talk about this second leg of the issue. The first sequence in this part has Daredevil in transit to the cafe, cast against a beautiful grayscale cityscape like Salus channeling Gene Colan. It's so good that I have a version of this sequence as my current screensaver. The detail is astounding, right down to the small puddles of water on the stones of a rooftop. However, this sequence is three pages. And while I've spoken about being willing to buy a full comic of Gene Colan basically showing this very thing, Daredevil in Transit, I'm referring more to a one-off issue of an ongoing series. I've said before that comics are more of a real estate in terms of storytelling. For example, you have so much space, so many issues, so many pages, etc. With that said, there are six issues in this series, and there could have been a bit more plot beats filtered in here. As we'll see, some of them kind of jump in and out as the series progresses, leaving themselves dangling. Visually, it is striking. I will not deny that. There's even a small nod to Maggie as two nuns walk below Daredevil sliding down a clothesline on his billy club. And to be fair, Loeb does make use of this space to play with the ongoing narration. And there is where something became clear to me. Two things that have been a recurring part of this discussion of this series are the idea of Matt putting himself on trial, so to speak, and the reasons that Matt remained Daredevil after his initial mission was finished. With this section of the issue, both of these ideas come together. 
and this may not be what you think it is. Bear with me because this gets choppy. Firstly, some of the ideas on why Matt remains Daredevil have been a form of penance for not saving Jack, also a form of ego which cuts both ways, the joy of validation and the insecurity that Matt holds. The third idea that I kind of put on the table and hinted at last week is more of a question. What role does Karen Page play in Matt's decision to make Daredevil an ongoing identity and mission? And I think that question is perfectly summarized with one line here. Daredevil thinks, with you on my mind, I thought I could fly. Let's lay out what's happening here, and presumably in the confines of the original Daredevil number 1 through 2. There's an obvious attraction to Karen. Matt's senses give him a good idea of what she looks like, so there is that surface-level physical attraction. Add to that moments like Karen saying, we should be proud of what we did here, after the Fantastic Four contract, and her general support of Matt and Foggy. Through that, her personality also won him over. She completes a circuit between Matt and Foggy. If they're the bricks, she's the mortar of Nelson and Murdoch, and the bond is already set. But Matt is also looking for a bit of validation in the female form. Remember, his mom left him, or he assumes she's dead at this time. His romance with Electo went down in flames. To this end, Matt mentions that the idea of his name, Daredevil, being mentioned in the same context as Thor and Iron Man is laughable. And of course, the bully's not laughing, as we mentioned last week. He's still looking to be accepted. Let's add to this the idea that Jack is gone, Matt's only family. Sure, Matt has Foggy, but he doesn't feel that certain void needed for a nuclear family. And looking back on the original comics, the original lament of Karen Page was that she could or would would marry Matt if only his blindness didn't form a barrier between them. So Matt has insecurities and believes that Karen, who is ideal to him, only sees Matt Murdock as a blind, a cripple, if you will. This leads to the thought process, if only she could see the real me. As Daredevil, Matt uses his full scope of senses and physical ability. He doesn't have to hide or hold back. He's free, and maybe there is that sliver of hope that Karen would reciprocate if she saw that. That is the seed of the idea that Matt wants Karen to see what he can do, to be impressed or wooed, and then love Matt for who he is. All of this coming from a place of insecurity and loneliness or mourning, if you will. This seems like a good foundation to build the case that Matt continued to being Daredevil, or was maybe influenced in the original issues to have an outlet for Karen to see him as he is. Now, of course, there's also altruism and things of that nature that propel him once he's in the arena. Once he's been Daredevil long enough, he sees the good he can do. Let's not discount that. But that's the impetus. That's the mindset. That's the role that Karen plays, at least initially. Now, with that in mind, along with Matt basically putting himself on trial, let's move to the scenes at the Marlin Cafe. And I hope you have everything saran wrapped because I'm about to blow your mind. I'm going to make this statement up front and just be completely blunt. This sequence, to me, in my opinion, is a dream or a dreamlike state. You can call it a trance or just deep, free-flow thought process that mingles conscious and subconscious thoughts. With that said, let me tell you why. My first piece of evidence is the establishing shot where Matt calls out the regulars. Regulars who are still exactly how and where they were years earlier, as if they're frozen in amber. We mentioned the Tiger Lady growling at her drink, Pacifico, the mad poet spouting poems in Spanish. There is the magic. This poem that Pacifico is calling out. Let me give you a, since my pronunciation is terrible, let me give you the Spanish version. Si de pronto no existes, si de repente usted no vive, voy a seguir viviendo. These are the first lines of a poem called La Muerta by Pablo Neruda. The English translation of the title is Dead Woman. In English, these lines read, If suddenly you do not exist, if suddenly you no longer live, I shall live on. Well, if that isn't on the nose, I don't know what is. Frankly, this whole sequence feels like it was guest-directed by David Lynch, because this is some straight-up Twin Peaks 
Let me nail down this idea for you if you're on the fence. Matt, not Daredevil, Matt, upstages a group of guys who would all be potential suitors for Karen. They're young, they're virile, they're good-looking. Potential suitors, potential competition. Not Daredevil, but Matt. And how does he do this? By retaliating their one-off Helen Keller joke with an absolute barrage of Helen Keller jokes. This is upstaging them by using his brains, not his fists. And then he beats them at their own game, figuratively and literally. To that end, Matt also displays his Daredevil ability on the pool table in a non-combat way. It's impressive, and it shows a skill in Matt's own skin that he wants Karen to see. He also gives her sweet advice as she is leaving, showing that he is caring and smart and looking out for her, wanting to provide for her. This is everything that Matt wants Karen to see in him, rolled up in one fine wrap and seasoned to perfection. It's too perfect. And the poem broadcasts this. Here's the dream, or whatever you want to call it, takes a turn. Once Karen leaves, and only when Karen leaves, we see another side to this. Matt's fight with the douchebags isn't witnessed. It's a display of anger, and that is key. This is the side of Matt that he doesn't want Karen to see. This is the part of himself that he is ashamed of. What that says to me is even in his dreams or fantasy, he can't accept a happy ending. For Matt, even on the sunniest days, there are clouds on the horizon. This sequence perfectly symbolizes the broken promise to Jack in a failure to really be what Karen needed because Matt just has to blame himself. It intertwines very subtly these two deaths on either end of the spectrum of the Daredevil saga and the idea that Matt completely whiffed it and he is now alone. He shows Karen what he wants her to see in accordance with the promise he made to Jack and then turns around and completely negates everything. This is an argument against Matt's mindset at the time, an admonishment of his youthful flamboyance and how that can backfire even in the modern context. The trial is still continuing. This is an accusation. If you really want to read it as such, it could just be Matt hustling pool and taking the garbage out and that doesn't seem quite as entertaining or quite as deep or really quite as relevant. With that, let's plow through the last part of the story and bring this bad boy home. Sometime later, Matt visits with Slade, who is sitting on death row. Matt's hope is to find out who the power above the fixer is. Slade doesn't tell, mocking Matt instead and asking for more pistachio nuts. When Matt returns to the offices of Nelson and Murdoch, he finds Foggy interviewing a prospective new client, a woman named Grace. Grace is being blackmailed by somebody that has found out a secret that she holds and she is seeking help, but seems skittish about providing details. As soon as she leaves, Matt tells Foggy that she was lying. He doesn't know what she was lying about, but she is lying. Some time passes and the man that Grace accused of blackmailing her arrives, a big man with a reputation for being merciless on Wall Street. He states that the woman was saying libelous things about him and that he wants to employ the services of Nelson and Murdoch. And with that, we meet the owl and the issue closes, which means we should talk about this last section and the issue overall. The most memorable scenes in this entire series are this one and one other scene in which Slade appears in the next issue. They stand out the moment anyone mentions Daredevil Yellow. This scene manages to give me chills. For one, it actually comes off the page as a cold, lifeless room. It literally makes me cold to read this. Secondly, the complete lack of regret or sorrow in Slade, it's galvanizing. He did it. He feels like Jack's death was justified. No matter which way you slice it, that is cold. Matt isn't here to show sympathy, by the way. Matt's only here to try to work up the criminal food chain. He's trying to get the person above the fixer, and Slade won't tell. 
I, however, will tell. Daredevil Volume 2, Issue 66, which is part of the Bendis Maleev run, fills in that gap in the Golden Age storyline and introduces the character of Alexander Bont. Bont was an old-school gangster who jumped in to fill the gap when Lucky Luciano was deported and made himself a name by killing a superhero from the Golden Age. Yeah, he was a B-lister called The Defender, but he still killed a superhero. Bont is important because he is the link between the real-world mafia history and Earth-616 mafia history. Because it is true that Luciano was deported and the Luciano family changed leaders, eventually becoming the Genovese family. Here with Bont, we see a line of secession. Bont is taken down shortly after this, leaving a power void, which well, had many attempts to try to take the throne. For example, the big man from Amazing Spider-Man number 10. But more importantly and more relevant to what we're seeing here, that void would eventually be filled by Wilson Fisk, who would take it to the next level. Essentially, Bont was the early proto-version of Fisk. Now, I will say that the fact that Slade doesn't tell Matt who this is doesn't mean that Slade's bad for that. Well, there's all kinds of other reasons why Slade is bad. We've pretty much demonstrated that. But it does put Slade in a more human light. Not quite sympathetic, but more understandable. Because the main reason he doesn't tell Matt about Bont is his children. Slade has children and his concern for his children is valid. But also it mirrors Jack and Matt a bit, even though it's not acknowledged at all. But it is right there, a father taking a sacrifice for his kid. He could get his sentence reduced, he could live longer if he just cooperated, but he wants to keep his kids safe. Jack, likewise, was in a position with his back against the wall. Go with the system or face the results. Results that could harm those closest to him. The kicker is that the big bad Alexander Bont is the evil force that is responsible for both men being in their respective positions. Or I guess I should be more clear, their decisions put them in that position. Alexander Bont is the force that's working against them. While we feel for Jack, Slade has no remorse, no redeeming qualities. They are two sides of a coin and Slade is the ugly side. The man even brags about putting the gun to Jack's head. He tells Matt that he should have seen it and then turns that into an insult by reminding Matt that he can't see. And the cherry on top? He asks Matt to bring him some pistachio nuts. And I swear, if I'm misreading this, please tell me, but there's a panel there where Slade realizes a moment that the nuts were what led to his downfall. Because he just laments pistachio nuts and you see this potential realization. As far as Grace and the Owl entering the picture, this is a source of frustration for me. Since this bit doesn't come to relevance until issue 5 of the series, and even then it doesn't track all the way through. So I'm not going to comment too much on that. We're going to come back around to that in a few episodes. But I do want to, of course, make sure it's put on the board for the moment. So let's render a final verdict on the issue. With this issue, we mostly get new material. And I'm thankful for that. The scene at the Marlin Cafe was a breath of fresh air, especially with new enlightened viewpoints after two issues that stayed pretty well within the small confines of the first issue sandbox. The relationship between Matt and Karen continues to grow and at a more natural pace than in the original issues, primarily because the Karen Foggy Matt triangle isn't the focus here yet. Sale was on point as usual, giving us a dark jail sale, sun-soaked offices, back alleys with grime, as well as a Norman Rockwell look at the Fantastic Four. And Matt Hollingsworth really helps amp Sale's visuals up to 11, enriching these environments with warmth or cold and needed, and making the world seem tangible even on the Rockwell sense. Loeb continues to drag his feet, but manages to move the overall story forward a bit, even while lingering on relationship elements and internal monologues. It's a slow burn, but the fact that the issue manages to flesh out unseen moments and nuances really rewards the investment of the first two issues. The standout sequence, of course, remains Matt's conversation with Slade, adding that idea that even after Matt captured Slade, the man managed to haunt him.
him. The series strays from its main focus now and again and allows scenes to play out a bit longer than they should, resulting in an occasional feeling of awkward silence. But so far, it generally manages to get back on track and give the reader another reason to invest in this narrative, posing challenging questions as it goes. Ultimately, this issue manages to barely keep the balance between the raw emotion of the first issue and the momentum and action of the second issue. It does manage, though, even if it's clumsy and rough, the balance is there, and it is enough to propel the reader to the next issue, which we will be looking at next week. Before we depart for another week, let's take a quick look into the email inbox. This week's email is from Brad Dade with a subject line, Sin Eater. Brad writes, hello, thank you for reviewing the Sin Eater storyline. I've been meaning to give that a reread for about 20 years. I got the trade when it first came out. At the time, I don't think I was a Spidey or a DD fan. In fact, this might have been the first DD story I read. But at the time, the trade collections were not a common thing, so the book itself just looked neat to have. In regards to the story, I really enjoyed it. It held up to the test of time much better than I expected to. You mentioned that Peter David continued to write this book after. Was it still in this tone, a more crime than superhero vibe? On a side note, the first couple of times I remember reading this story a years ago, there was a pacing problem near the end. Then I realized that two pages of the Spidey Daredevil fight near the end were incorrectly flipped out of order. This is something I have noticed a lot of Marvel trades from the early to late 90s had. I used to have several Daredevil trades that were awful for that. Really looking forward to your look at the Child's Play storyline. There is a a minor plot hole there that has drove me nuts for decades. Cheers, Brad Dade. And see, so far there's been a lot of good response to the Sin Eater storyline, which I really appreciate. It tells me I can be a bit playful with what I cover. As for the pages flipped around in that trade paperback, I saw examples of that in my time and they all stem from the mid to late 80s, like you said. Also, because trade paperback was used to facilitate sold-out issues rather than to supply the big bookstores with fodder, so quality control was probably looked at as a non-priority. Seeing as which there was still a bit of a collection market there and most people would be seeking out the issues in individual form. As far as Peter David's run on Spectacular, it did remain in the darker street-level tone for the most part, but it did slowly add a bit more splash of superhero here and there. It dealt with the fallout of the Sin Eater tale, but never really went back to the level of intensity or grit that you see here. And that's kind of a mixed bag, some good, some bad. As for Child's Play, one day, Brad, I will cover that and all of the plot holes involved. I gotta say, it was definitely the lower point of the Miller run, right before the book took off for the finish line. But thank you for dropping a line, Brad. If anyone else wants to drop an email, feel free to send a line to mail at daredevilpodcast.com. And that brings us to the close of another episode. Next week, Electro, the Rockettes, bowling, the final fate of Slade, and a surprise engagement await Daredevil in the pages of Daredevil Yellow number four. That is in one week. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks network of podcasts. You can find the show's home at twotruefreaks.com. Also, choose to like the network on Facebook. Simply search for Two True Freaks. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash daveweeder. And you can email the show. The address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right, simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf. And you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. 
If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and keep the lights on at 2TrueFreaks at the same time. What a deal. Daredevil and all related characters are copyright Marvel Entertainment Group, all rights reserved. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not draw profit from the references to the characters herein. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes. All rights lie with the copyright holder. Dave's Daredevil podcast is a production of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Until next time, I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.